Previously on Gigdom in Pause. It was more like an internal sort of, I don't think that I can be this superhero. You know, I don't think I have what it takes to be a superhero. So it's more like a sort of internalized, you know, an inadequacy then, you know, and thinking that you can't save the world because you're from the Caribbean. So it was more, it was more like that. Um, you know, thinking we're not enough, we're a small island. Today on Geekdom Powers. Whatever my first film will be. And I think whatever it is, it's it's I have to remember it's 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 for me. Whatever that first movie is. It's me first. And hopefully that'll make it truthful than just trying to make something that's gonna be air quote marketable for uh uh, for everyone else or uh, easier to make or, or, or something that's going to be like in the trend because then I feel like that'd be wrong for me to do it that way. So it's your experience of yourself. It's not like it's for me, me, me. It's like it's who it's getting expressing who you are. You are listening to Geekdom Empowers, the podcast about people empowered through their geekiness. Welcome back! My name is Guy Hasson and you are listening to Geekdom in Powers. Geekdom in Powers is the podcast that highlights creators and fans in the geek world who do not often get to be highlighted. It's these people. It is us who make up almost all of the geek world by talking to each person, by hearing their stories. Geekdom in Powers creates a huge giant world-sized quilt of the geeks all around the world. Each person is a story and together we are one story, one huge Geekverse quilt. And actually, you will notice at some point in this uh, podcast that there are things I learned by talking to people around the world, which allows me to ask questions that I wouldn't have otherwise. I have gained knowledge talking to people that allows me to ask different questions. But before I tell you about today's guest, I'd like to spend a minute to talk about what's going on in the world right now. Russia has invaded Ukraine, and I'd like to say one thing on that. With all the information that's floating around the world today, with everything we've learned and seen about history, I think we can safely say that when we see a person who tries to take over the world, a person with ambitions to take over more and more of the world, then that's just a sign of him, always him, always, always men. Then that's just a sign that he feels really, really small. The smaller he feels, the more he wants to prove he's big. The weaker he is, the more he feels a need to show to the world how strong he is. And most people fall for it, recognizing a weak man for a strong man, uh, a conqueror for uh, strength rather than weakness. Remember the movie 300? I tried and tried and tried and could never get through more than just a few minutes of it. That's because there are muscular men there shouting, I am strong! And whenever I see someone yelling and trying to prove he's strong, that tells me he's weak. He feels weak. Strong people have strength. They don't need to show strength. The only people who need to show strength are people who feel weak, people who need to prove something, to prove because because they don't believe it themselves. So when we look at Putin, let's always remember how small he feels, how weak he feels. And let's remember that any tyrant, anyone in the past, present or future, 
They let us know who they are by advertising how small they feel when they try to prove how big they are. Now, back to our regularly scheduled programming. Today's guest is Justin Kizan. Today's guest is Justin Kizan, who, in his Instagram description, described himself as, I won't shut up about movies. <laughs> Which... Leads us to believe he's going to talk about movies and he's funny. So we talked to Justin about his journey, about Lumpia, a Filipino superhero movie. Uh, he's involved in a second movie, about his plans for his own first personal movie, about comedy, about superheroes, and so much more. So let's get to it. Can you talk about the stuff behind you? I see Captain America's shield, Back to the Future, Danny Turner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> prep like uh, a potpourri of, of randomness yeah um well i'll start with the danny trejo thing over here yeah. um uh danny trejo poster uh was a, a fan art poster i got ooh probably 2000 maybe 2005 2006 and yeah. i got it as sort of good luck um because um, the shirt i'm wearing uh, is a t-shirt Just, for the Lumpia. The shirt I'm wearing says Lumpia with a vengeance. And this yes. is the feature film I'm an associate producer on. And before, while we were trying to get funding for the film and casting for the film, we wrote a part for Danny Trejo. And we didn't get the confirmation with him yet. We're at the time we were talking with his, his people. So I bought the poster because the, this poster was coming from an art store that was closing and uh my friend owned this art store and i've always looked at this piece and i've always said oh i should buy this as a good luck to see if we can maybe if i buy it we'll get it for the film and she was closing the store and i figured okay i'm gonna buy the poster and hopefully this <laughs> will wish give me the good you know vibes the good uh, the good luck to get mm-hmm. to ha for our film and uh it worked uh he's <laughs> as far as i'm concerned it worked wow. he's in our he's in our movie um we promote him heavily in a lot of early trailers. Uh, he's in the poster. Uh, and I, I sadly wasn't there when we filmed him, though. I actually couldn't make it. But uh, I heard he was he was a really, really very, like, really easy guy to work with. Really a lot of fun. But I always tell our director, like, I got the poster to kind of, you know, hopefully give us <laughs> give us a little energy to positive vibes to get him. And we actually got him. Um, the captain america shield i just bought at like at a toys you know like a target or whatever and but um funny because it was uh we have a mutual name we have a mutual with, with chris mm-hmm. he suggested uh, for this. yeah yes uh and chris's wife was the one if, i'll take it off the thing for a minute she actually added the scuffing oh so this was just a plain clean you know kids toy but chris bought one too and she sort of do she did all this sort of fun fake bullet ricochet work on it. And then I kind of very begged her to go, could you do that for mine? <laughs> so little extra nice. detail. Yeah. And um, the Back to the Future poster uh, was a birthday gift from my brother when I was 12 because hmm. uh, it's my favorite movie of all time. It's amazing. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And it's a great comedy too. Like it's done exactly like I learned how to do comedies, and that's how you do a comedy. Agreed, absolutely. It's a standard for me. It's kind of like standard of how I would make uh, what I like about 
movies in general, the type of movies I'm drawn to. You know, I love a lot of different kind of films, but the movies I tend to be drawn to are uh, movies about uh, interesting character relationships like Doc and Marty, um, mm-hmm. big ideas like the concept of the way they handle time travel, comedies, uh, but a little bit of drama that sets up the reason for the comedy. You know, Marty, it's very funny that Marty's in 1955, but he has to make sure he gets back to 1985 or his whole world is gone, including him. Um, The movie feels big, but it also feels very intimate. You know, Uh, it's the script is incredibly well set up and, and structured perfectly in, in a way to allow it to be all these things. And, uh, you know, uh, so I already started going on to my my spiel. So <laughs> like everything about that is so amazing. Like those shots of discovery, like uh, his eye appearing like this, looking at that, you know. Uh, yeah. So let's begin in the beginning, though. What's your origin story? Oh, wow. Um, so I was born in uh, Southern California. My family's from uh, the Philippines. They... Uh, uh moved here mid-70s to my brother my sister came here early 80s and i was born in 83 um kind of grew up here never really lived outside of the state um and uh, i'm pretty sure i I, i'm a generation i'm the i'm the quote-unquote mtv generation that some people feared (laughs) in terms of just you plop me in front of the television uh and we had cable that we still have, you know, we have cable. And so I, I, I absorbed what I was watching, you know, so movies, TV, uh, um, cartoons, you know, etc. And my brother. Wait, hold yeah. on. For people mm-hmm. who weren't there, what does that sure. what does having cable mean? Like how, what channels did you have? Oh, yeah. So ABC, NBC, CBS, and there was Fox at the time. And then, the, and then the, we had HBO, Nickelodeon. Mm-hmm. Um uh, like I said, MTV. I remember specifically with MTV, music television, you know, it's, again, it's the joke. It's funny how many people don't actually are forgetting that music television MTV was, that was the whole channel, 24 hours of music videos yeah. that we can just watch now on YouTube any anytime you want uh, and pick the music video you want to see. But uh, back then, it was just always on, you know, on a repeat. And, you know, I, I, I do have memories of realizing I should have not watched half the music videos that I saw. I was like four or five and maybe some Billy Idol videos that I was a little too young to understand. But, um, uh, I, you know, I, yeah, for, for, for that, it wasn't, yeah, I was watching your sitcoms, your Saturday morning cartoon shows like any other kid who had access to, but I also do recall watching whatever we had on the extended paid cable services. So, you know, your HBO shows, your HBO movies and, um, yeah, I do think my, to be fair, my parents and we're pretty good about making sure that like, if I'm watching something and it, and they, they want to make, and it's like clearly a rated R movie, they'd be like, okay, okay no, <laughs> turn the TV or switch it back to something else. Um, but I was absorbing a lot of media that I think more media than I think a lot of other folks were around my age. So I was pretty sure of that. Mm-hmm. And the next step in your origin story. Um, when did the radioactive spider reach you? <laughs> I bet I bet you it was when um, I saw my very first uh, Marvel comic book, or my very first comic book. 
um i was already kind of a, a an superhero obsessed kid um because i watched a lot of cartoons and uh, i was really into the incredible hulk as a kid you know they had there was an old 80s cartoon that a lot of folks seem to kind of have forgotten about but also on on rerun the the lou ferrigno 70s tv show you know bill so, uh bill bixby and so i was mm-hmm. watching that on on reruns and I was, well, I was obsessed with it. I, I don't know what it is about the show that I gravitated towards, but I love the character of the Hulk. And I remember being a kid one day going by a comic book spinner rack and there was an issue of the Incredible Hulk as a comic book. And I, you know, basically picked it up and this is, I know for a fact, this was my very first comic book. I asked, mm-hmm. you know, sister to go can i get this it was like a couple of dollars and um she you know you know i had a bunch of picture books at home i figured she didn't she probably figured well what's the harm sure why not and we took it home and i must have powered you know plowed through this comic book and was drawing like was re was redrawing the things i saw in it um I I know for a fact the comic didn't survive <laughs> the the shit the page uh, the the cover the last time I remember the cover was falling apart but uh, yeah that's that's when I knew I was started that's when I became even more into the uh, uh, you know the world of superheroes is finally learning about comic books and then then that's a whole other. Do you yeah. remember what the story was in? Was that, I think also the Peter David years, right? Yes, uh, and it was in fact a Peter David, and if I'm not mistaken, a Dale Nyon drawing, uh, drawn issue, and it was a big issue actually. This was the issue where he was mostly Greyhawk for a period, and this was the issue that he became the Green Hulk for the first time after being the Greyhawk for a very long time. Mm. And so this was unlike any Hulk transformation I've ever seen. Normally when Bruce Banner becomes the Hulk, you know, it's like a werewolf transformation. It's a slow metamorphosis, you know, mm-hmm. or like in the Bixby TV show, it's a ripping of the t-shirt. <laughs> um, here though, I've never seen it done like this since or before, but this is the one where Bruce Banner isn't just transforming until he's ripping his skin like like a butterfly almost mm. like kind of coming out of a cocoon and it's and instead of like just grow it's like it's the husk of bruce banner on the ground while he becomes the green hulk for what i didn't know at the time was the first time in a very long time and i remember having my sister read the comic to me because i still wasn't good at reading and we got to that point and she was like okay and then ew <laughs> it was very a grotesque imagery um that I, I didn't realize was going to freak her out. But I, I've never seen a transformation for the Hulk like that ever since. And but yeah, it was, um, I think if maybe Incredible Hulk 151 might be the number. I got to double check. I did rebuy the comic at, at my local shop like mm. a decade later and kept that preserved. <laughs> but I, I'll never forget. That was my very first comic book ever. Nice. Mm-hmm. And then, then I'm bending the story of your your origin story. Yeah. So what happened then? Um, I thought I was going to be a comic book artist for the longest time. You know, I was going to draw. Uh, at the same time, my brother also uh, got me into film, 
and he would it was interesting I, I i don't know what he thought he was doing at the time but what he was doing he was you know like yes i'll watch a current animated film from a disney or whatever what have you but he also was wanted me to be exposed to other you know other movies older movies specifically so i would watch casablanca i would watch uh charlie chaplin films uh i would watch um buster keaton movies gene kelly films Buster keaton yeah you know, I know, and I loved all of that. I loved all of this stuff. Yeah, I remember going to the silent movie theater in LA. There was a theater that still showed silent movie theater, silent movies with a guy still playing piano, and I loved it. Huh. And um, he, of course, was also the one who got me into Star Wars. You know, and mm-hmm. back to the and uh, you know uh, Indiana Jones and etc. <clears throat> so his influence got me into film, and also gained to me to appreciate overall movies in general so he would take me to foreign films where i had to read the subtitles i i do remember specifically one day i wanted to see ace ventura mm-hmm. in uh when nature calls and he's like okay i'll take you to that one but you have to watch something with me and i went okay what is it and it's a jane austen adaptation <laughs> uh the movie was called persuasion it, it's and he he did take me to the Ace Ventura movie, but immediately the next day he took me to this Jane Austen movie. So I had to watch, you know, you know, costumed historical drama. Uh, but then he did ask, what do you think of it? And I, I my shocking answer wasn't, oh, I was bored. I was like, oh, was kinda, yeah, I kind of liked it. I don't. Yeah, I think he he allowed me to kind of uh, be open to everything. You know, but I still, with my heart of hearts, love, love the more adventure and, you know, the the fun stuff. But I do have an appreciation for um, a lot of different stuff, a lot of different genres, a lot of different uh, storytelling and media. Nice. And how did you get into creating? Um, With comic books, it was a situation of realizing, oh, I can do, I can draw that. Because the brain couldn't stop coming up with stuff i think uh i remember kind of taking my action figures and telling stories with them mm-hmm. and then i i remember watching the making of uh how how making of back to the future i'm not back to the future making of star wars documentaries i saw and it was fascinated how movies got made and visual effects and then mm-hmm. i saw how to you know how did comics get made so when i started seeing that there were people behind the scenes coming up with this stuff i was really invested in the idea that I could become one of them or I can do what they're doing. So uh, comics, I figured, was my route for the longest time, though I loved mm-hmm. I loved movies. And yeah, my brother was going to film school at the time. So I, in my brain, I just said, okay, he'll take care of movies. <laughs> my brother will be the famous filmmaker. I will be the, the comic book artist. I'll be the one drawing Spider-Man. Um, Hold on. Was that and like was the thought really he'll be he'll be famous I'll be famous was yeah. famous a part of the equation okay well to a degree like I think I equated fame as that means you just get to do this only I I was kind of aware to some degree that um it's not a, it wasn't an easy career path even as a kid um but I kind of figured okay if you get to this level of notoriety because i was reading up on 
filmmakers and comic book creators um, on different magazines and interviews because I was starting to become like, you know, invested in how they got to they got how Spielberg became Spielberg or how to Grant Morrison become Grant Morrison or how Jack Kirby got to be, you know, et cetera. You know, mm-hmm. um, it all led to a point of they made something, got their respect and they were allowed to keep doing it because they created a thing that was respected. And that's what I thought of as a kid. So I figured, okay, well, maybe my brother will become the famous filmmaker and he gets to make movies for the rest of his life. I will become, I'll try to become a, a pretty famous comic book artist so that I can go and keep making the stuff I want to make. Cause that's what I equated fame to be was the freedom to keep making. Um, you know, it's a very kid like understanding of what the, the term was and what the, that, what the, those things mean uh, at the end of the day. But that's what I thought, okay. you know. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I equated it, you know, separated that. Um, yeah, so that was the plan. I was going to be a, a comic book artist for the longest time. Yeah. Um, how did you do that? What happened? Um, I was drawing a lot, I, I, you know, and making my own books at home. And high school kind of hit. And I noticed, even though I was drawing as much as I, I was drawing quite a bit, I, I will admit that I wasn't drawing probably as much as I should have. And I was getting a little lazy on certain elements of drawing, though I liked it. And certain things like, oh, do I have to draw a car? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, oh, do I have to draw every building? I don't really want to draw every building. And that started equating. And I'm not going to lie, I, I took an art class in high school that was not particularly very encouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, it gave me a glimpse of the art world which is very different from the world I thought what the comic book world was, which, yeah, I don't know what it was, but I think the encouragement wasn't the same and it, mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I was good enough anymore. So I was sort of like kind of lost at a certain point and maybe decided to give up the comic book creative work and just find a, a different job. So I, for a brief period, I just thought I'll be like a teacher. Nothing, no, nothing wrong with being a teacher. I just figured, oh, okay, this is probably the safer route for me then because i'm not gonna i'm not good enough (laughs) that's what i thought in high school i wasn't good enough you know so i went to try to aim for an education job after that and then what was the next step community college where i was just i was about trying to get my trying to get my final education transfer over to a university and um, start my path of what I thought was going to be probably being an, an English, an English teacher. Cause I liked English. That was my best subject. Um, but then the, if the comic book was the spider bite, this was me getting the, the Spider-Man costume mm-hmm. <laughs> is that I took a, for a, for a lark, I took a TV production class in at school, which was, we had to do a, make a TV sitcom. Uh, in the class, we wrote it. We 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 directed. We edit. Um, we even brought in actors who weren't a part of the class. They were just you know professional actors who came in, and we paid to be in our sitcom. Can I and, yeah, and it was an interesting. It was a fun exercise for sure, and it gave me a taste of production and what it was mm-hmm. like. And I I loved it, and I loved the whole process of writing and coming up with stuff and then having an actor do the work that I wrote. What was that like? Oh, it was great. Um, It was kind of wild because one thing to read it in your head, which Mm -hmm. I got used to, 
But then to actually see an actor say what you're saying out loud, but then even more exciting was seeing their interpretation of it. Like I remember being like, oh, I didn't think of it like that. But yeah, talk to the actor and oh, I, I, do you want me to change it? I can, but this is why I said it like that. And I went, no, no, I actually that's better. And I realized, oh, it's yes, collaborative. It was it's yes. symbiotic. You know, like you feed off of this, I feed off of that. And I, I, I remember the first the first time that happened to me. Like mm. it's it's a major moment. Like yeah, uh, I had a play uh, when I was nineteen and. Mm. And the director forgot to tell me rehearsals began. So I came in like a weekend. Mm. Uh, and then I saw a text and I couldn't believe, like I had to check, wait, did I write those words? They don't sound like the thing in my head. Right. And yeah, it was a huge moment. And that's where you learn how to write for people. Rather than yeah. Paper. Yeah. It's amazing, honestly. And I almost feel like when you realize, it's funny, I think there's a, there's a realization of if, that creative process is for you or not, because um, I had, we had another good friend of ours was a, another writer and he actually ended up becoming a, a, a comic book creator himself. You know, he was writing, drawing his own stuff. And this is the first time he saw anyone act his work. He complained <laughs> a lot about, well, no, it's no, that's not this character. It's not how I imagined it, blah, 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 blah. But I, I saw, I remember reading what he wrote and I thought it was good. And then I, saw the actor and and my brain's like yeah but isn't that interesting why like isn't that kind of cool that he did it differently but my friend was like no no but it's not what i imagined i don't really and i saw now i'm in hindsight realizing oh this isn't for you that collaboration that that exchange that change you know you and that's maybe that's why be what it was with when you're creating comics it's very isolating you know um and what but when you're making film or you know theater productions when you're collaborating with other folks to create the the world there is something kind of exciting when you, especially when you get the right mix of people you know when you get a, the right actors and production people that they kind of get what you're going for if you're the head of the creative project and it's really exciting when they agree what you're doing but then they add their own thing and that changes it and makes it better sometimes and I realized like, oh, I like this a lot. I like how this feeds into that, that feeds into that. Um, and I don't know, like for my friend, that wasn't for him. But for me, that was the locking, the final moment of, oh, shoot, I like this too. Yeah. You know, you know, I like collaborating. I like hanging out. I like um, figuring things out for the better. And, you know, if I meet the right people, it's, it's, it's exciting and it's fun. What did you base that uh, sitcom on? Um, you know, it was a very... The sitcom was, to put it best, is a, is a, a, a real ripoff <laughs> of Faulty Towers. The John Cleese. Ah, uh, yes. One of the was best ho- TV comedies ever. Absolutely. And we are, the teacher who came up with the project, he just... He's like, oh, it's in the hotel, and you're, you're the main character is the manager, and all the wacky. And then, and my, and then I said, that's Faulty Towers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now I didn't want to tell him that. No, like, oh, it's a community, it's a community college project, so that's fine. But our, it hundred percent, the model was was Faulty Towers, and um, it's so funny to kind of like 
that's a decent model to create because that meant we could just add a bunch of wacky characters and sure. we had a setting in the you know um, but also it's, it was a great experience because it was where i met a lot of my closest friends who i'm still friends with to this day um one of my biggest collaborators period who's produced a lot of the stuff i've done and co-wrote a lot of stuff with me i met him in this class um and the, the lead actor our john our john cleese if you will he mm-hmm. he became one of our closest friends uh uh during this class so it's nice. it was a, you know yeah, it was a fun experience for sure you know wait i can talk about 40 pounds for hours <laughs> I, i'll just say one thing i'll just sure, say one thing sure please uh that maybe uh, you know i i when i i was years ago i was in london and i found a book a book mm-hmm. uh which basically had all the scripts for 40 pounds oh and wow. you read it you see that there are more jokes in it. Like in many places, there's like jokes every other line and they step on the jokes when they perform it just so you can, so they can go for the joke that's once every five lines. So you laugh at it, otherwise you won't even move. Like you won't be able to get through it. So they step on the jokes on purpose just to get, you know, to the big stuff. Oh, I love that. I love that. That's great. I should probably. This is a book. It's a book. I gotta find that book. That's it's exciting. probably on Amazon. So, right, Forty Towers and the public. Yeah. That's awesome. That's great. <laughs> um. So yeah, that's kind of what further led into the the interest in sticking with film and finding out that film is my thing. And um. And if you yeah, and interesting enough, my brother, he's moved on to documentary filmmaking ironically enough like he's that's where his interests lied he became a documentarian um and i guess you know my brain even i always like i never wanted to step on his toes which is sort of weird i don't know why he's my older brother i'm sure he would support me um but my brain's like oh he takes care of that but even though i know he and he was he's been supportive of me in the filmmaking decision as soon as i realized that's what i wanted to do and he's like okay great we'll help you do this and we'll get you this and he's been an amazing supporter like the fact that he doesn't want to do fiction filmmaking anymore. That wasn't his interest anymore, writing scripts and, and, you know, getting actors. He was more interested in telling real stories or going, you know, telling a personal story about a certain people uh, and their individual lives was more his interest. And I, in my brain, again, I allowed the carpet, you know, I allowed him to, okay, so that's where he's going to be at. <laughs> and I'm going to be here, but I took the fame equation out of it because I started realizing it didn't matter. Um, like I, we have, you know, like we can keep doing what we're doing, you know, and I've also kind of learned that technology now has allowed it to be a little easier to be a filmmaker. So, mm-hmm. you know, I now, you know, it doesn't, you know, now I'm not, you know, like so worried about, Oh, I'm stepping on his toes. Cause like what toes are there to step on? You know, we're, we're, we're both storytellers in different, in different mediums and different There's ways. Room yeah. For everyone. Yeah. There's room for everyone. Yeah. There's only one you and only one him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah. No. Uh, from there, I went to film school and uh, uh, Los Angeles Film School, one year program. Mm-hmm. Amazing experience there. Financially, was not the best experience. <laughs> Financially, was something I I had to fight uh, sure. for a while. That was a that was a struggle, and you know, but I don't regret going. I kind of told people that was like a. Film, film school to me felt like film camp. You know, I, I went away for a year 
daydreamed about being a filmmaker with other folks who daydreamed it too. And I'm again, much like community college and that TV production, I've also made friends in this school that are still my friends to this day. And all of them are still, you know, various forms of success, but we're all still doing what we're trying to do. And we'll always, Hey, if I call any of them to help me, they'll come immediately to help me and vice versa. So it's, it was, it's in a very important year for me going to the film school. You know, yeah. And, and then what, what happened after film school? Uh, reality. Um, <laughs> five years. I did five years of uh, grunt work in Hollywood. So mm. um, all the odds and end jobs you can think of. So production assistant, uh, assistant to directors, uh, you know, um, logging raw footage transcribing footage for reality shows uh mm. go for a runner um none of it creative none of it was creative and this this was a pretty important period for me because it did allow me to see okay this is how the higher ups treat the the below the line folks mm. and you know i got to see really great producers be incredibly smart and helpful and caring for everyone from the top to the bottom. And I've gotten to see really selfish people on the top, not care about anyone down here. Um, I've seen great directors be incredibly, you know, uh, understanding and caring to every cast and crew member. And, and um, I've seen egotistical directors who aren't, necessarily the best people to run a production and ask for ridiculous demanding things at 2 a.m. in the morning, you know? So it was a great experience to learn what was, you know, what, what, what people learn how to act and interact with people. And I also realized that with this period, with this period, it was for me, um, very important to see that if the top isn't doing their job and communicating clearly what they wanted, then the people under them are going to be always consistently mad, angry, and frustrated. Mm -hmm. And it's so wild to me how simple communication doesn't exist in so many productions, big and small. And I, I, I stress that to this day <laughs> on, 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 on my, in my life, whether I'm doing production or even just on my regular day job that I'm like, just communicate, just, just say what you want. So that's clear. And then mm -hmm. in, in, if we can make it happen, we can make it happen. And I never understood holding back information or holding uh, or uh, or uh, not saying exactly what you want to the people that sh that's trying to execute what you need from them. I don't understand that. And I've seen it so many times that I, I just like why. And, you know, and, and, it's, and it becomes rougher. The day gets harder when you don't communicate what you want from folks if you're the one in charge. And I never understood that. So that's, that's a you lesson I took from that. Yeah. And you don't get the results you want because you didn't ask. And you don't. And, and inside you, you get, you know, you get built, you, frustration builds. And then, for, and then it comes out in an explosion. And nobody knows why, because you never communicated. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. You know, it's interesting, too, because I would read interviews for, uh, from other, even big-known filmmakers. Like, I would mm -hmm. read, you know, like, uh, I think it was a Tarantino interview a while back where he was making Kill Bill Volume 1. 
and you know he this is the first time he's doing a big fight scene martial art big battle sequence at in any of his movies and the choreographer had to go up to him and went the only person who's seeing this movie is you and we're here to help you to make that movie but you you got to let us in because you're not letting us in yet. And we're having a hard time trying to get there for you if you don't tell us. And he's like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and so we had to unlock that head and it, production got a lot easier after that. But it's always uh, it's a thing that I try to keep in mind. It's a lesson I took, you know, it's like, OK, if I'm in charge of a production, big or small, then my goal is I'm going to have to let you all know what I'm trying my best to go for. And, but please, if I'm not clear, just tell me and I'll tell you. I want that to be abundantly clear, you know, because like you said, the, if I'm not going to get the results, if I'm if I'm if I'm frustrated because I'm not getting the results and I'm not telling you, that's on me. You need to tell me you need to let me know, you know. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. So you had five years of uh, grunt work. Right. Uh, after that, I uh, my final job is I worked a, a skateboarding video, a big budgeted probably think around god help me a million dollars i think <laughs> for a skateboarding video mm-hmm. and that was my that was the line in the sand i was like, i can't do this anymore i can't do the grunt work anymore i need to know where my paycheck is at i need to know where i need to have health i need to have dental i can't do this anymore and the skateboard so, will call you at 2 a.m you know asking for you know for the laundry to be done so you know it's a problem oh yeah i my more stories are from this production Really? worst stories yeah at five years some of the worst production stories i've had is from the skateboarding production this is the worst one i've ever done and it was enough for me to go i think i'm done for a while and i found a day job um from a good friend and you know and i still work at this day it's gonna be 10 years but i'm very grateful for this job because it's a it's a place that allows me to you know when i have creative projects i need to get i want to get done they understood and they support and um, I'm even doing some creative projects for this day job, which has allowed me to kind of still keep doing it, uh, even now I'm getting paid. But I do remember when I got hired, um, I did say, you know, they did saw that I had history in production and going and et cetera. And I, are you planning on doing this on the side still? And I told no, not for a year, if that's okay. Like, at minimum, I want to just dedicate being good at this job. And they're like, yeah. No, we respect that. And if you, if something good comes up, you know, please tell us. I'm, I, I need a break from it. <laughs> like, uh, so I took, I, I, I did get actually, yeah, I did get gigs and offers in that first year of this of my day job, but I did turn them down. You know what? Like right now, I just need to save my funds, get a regular money, because uh, I, I, I was struggling for five years, and it was hard to pay the student loan have any regular you know income you know get gas you know to do these jobs and it was too much so i i i did turn down work in the industry for about a year because i just simply can't do this you know i i just need to know where my paycheck is coming from and i was able to just sort of have a regular life for a year you know and i did promise that uh so yeah i'm and what's interesting is that even though the year happened, um, funny enough, almost to the date, I didn't even realize it until recently, but I was talking to somebody else about it, but around almost a year of, I got in contact with a friend who is the director of this movie. And Lumpia. Lumpia. 
and we've hung out and etc. And I know he was a filmmaker. He's made music videos, etc. He and me, me and him were hanging out one day, and it's almost almost a year since I got the job. And he said, "Hey, are you interested in helping me out with some screenplay work? Because I heard you're a writer, and I've seen some of your stuff, and, and you're pretty funny. Uh, I have a comedy I'm working on. Do you would you be mind interested in working on that?" And I went, "Yeah, yeah, for sure." And it didn't occur to me, but I went, that was the year. <laughs> I said I was going to take a year off from any industry work and almost a year to the date I met, I, I got offered from him to do something creative with him. Nice. And, I mean, that just kind of shows, you know, like just keep, you know, like you never know what's going to happen. You know, what kind of funny, what, I mean, it said you wrote funny things. What kind of things did you write? I, uh, I wrote a lot of sketches and comedy sketches um, in the five years, I was a I was also a writer, producer. Sometimes I directed uh, comedy sketches for uh, a group that had the original comedy group name, SketchComedyShow.com, because <laughs> it was a it was a URL that no one bought and they did. <laughs> so, um, and again, I met i met some really great folks in that in that group a lot of the actors in that production in that production sorry, uh, in that sketch group actually went on to do really well afterwards oh. um like i know uh, one of them produced and and starred in a in a in a, in a in a comedy movie that just got released from on comedy central called uh hot holiday mess which is really good actually and uh that's like the first real like Southeast Asian-led film. Uh, mm -hmm. The cult cast is is Indian. Creative team is Indian, uh, Indian American. Um, produced by Cal Penn, and yeah, like, and she was a regular member of our group. She was always like me and her were cracked up and cracked each other up. Wrote a lot of goat sketches in this group. Um, another one is a uh, actor named Earl Bainlon, who was also became a producer, writer, and co-star in our film. Uh, he's one of my best friends in that group and he went on to star in uh, a couple uh, in the more recent Tomb Raider video games you know so it was a very really like talented group of folks that I wrote a lot of sketches with filmed on either there for YouTube or we post or we did them on stage uh, live in the audience and it was a really good learning ground to you know, learn about comedy learn when comedy would work when or just accept that an audience may not get the comedy you know, yeah. it was a really interesting experience, but I had a lot of fun with it, you know. What was it like to hear, you know, to be, uh, to be live, not necessarily like to show your thing, your comedy to a live audience for the first time? Horrifying. <laughs> really? Horrifying, because uh, I didn't know if anyone's going to laugh, you know. Um, when they, like, I assume they laughed. They did. They What did. Like? Great. Um, I, I mean, I had some confidence in, in my humor. I, I, because I, I did my great, all I've, most of the stuff I've done has been comedic in some fashion. Um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, some of my earlier YouTube videos I did with my friends, they're comedic. And, uh, my graduation film, uh, from film school was like this Filipino led martial arts action comedy. Uh, and that premiered at a film festival six months later and it, it did really well at that film festival people really liked it and had a good time with it and so i felt like okay i, I i'm pretty sure i'm funny but seeing that 
yeah, uh, but the, the you know, uh, still having an audience, a live audience with live actors, no editing. I could hide it behind, <laughs> you know, um, to make it funnier. I have to just trust that the actors are going to do a good job, which they did. Uh, but I was nervous because he was like, oh, no, this is the first one I wrote. And I don't know if anyone in the audience is going to dig it. And it did well, you know, but I've also learned that I, I, I'm not the I wasn't the best one. I will be honest. I wasn't the best one in the group. I the the person in the group who was the best writer, who also still is one of my good friends. I, I also had to learn a little bit of humility because I felt like I, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be like, oh, the top writer. I'm going to be like Tina Fey you know, the head writer level of SNL. And instead, I I kind of realized that I'm not as good at this as this person in the group was. And, and he just got it better every year. And instead of being jealous of him, I went from like just supporting him and being a fan of his. And, <clears throat> you know, when he asked for my help to, you know, make sure it's good and better, I would give him my notes. But I didn't have this weird ego of like, well, I was supposed to be the good writer. It's like, no, no, I'm a, I'm, I, I know I'm not as good as this guy. So I was able to kind of learn to be a little humble about where I was at my skill set and try to get better. You know, sometimes like, well, this will be about as good as this work. <laughs> no. Um, but what he told me I was really good at was directing. And like, he's like, no, you're a good director, man. Like, you know how to get the best out of us. And I took that to heart when I was like directing them in videos and sketches. So um, I learned where my skill set was and that was a great learning experience being part of that sketch group, uh, you know, and I'm still good, good friends with the majority of them, you know. Nice. So we're at the uh, person uh, giving you the job. Mm -hmm. For the film. Yeah. Um, you like well, what's the film about? The film is uh, a sequel to the director's first feature film, which he made in 2003. And um, to put it simply, it's about a Filipino superhero who throws uh, a very popular Filipino dish called the lumpia, mm -hmm. which is an egg roll, uh, as a weapon. <laughs> so he throws egg rolls around like, like it's Batman's battery and fights criminals in a very hyper-realized version of San Francisco or the Bay Area of California. And um, and it's uh, our film is about the children of the first movie, specifically the daughter of the main character from the first movie, and her experience entering this goofy world of, 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 a, of, a, of a Filipino superhero who throws egg rolls and the comic book level villains that populate the her hometown um and the whole cast is pretty much filipino um the direct most the most the all the higher creatives are in the film are filipino american um and it's you know very you know heavily pushed to be a full-on filipino american movie you know and uh been trying to make this since you know 2013 so wow the first one, when did the first one happen? 2003. And was it uh, a completely Filipino American movie? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he shot that, his first film, he shot during his breaks in college. Hmm. So he, it's, he would go back to his hometown and same thing, all cast of his friends, it's all his neighborhood friends, all Filipino 
you know, mm-hmm. kids who didn't act outside of his projects. Um, and same deal, like, you know, uh, all Filipino led Filipino behind the scenes, Filipino in front of the cameras for the majority of it, you know, um, especially the whole leads. And um, yeah, yeah, that, that movie de- gained a small cult following in the kind of Philam Filipino American film community, you know, so a lot of uh, it, when he did the tours throughout the country in, in Hawaii, there was a people that grew to uh, know his work from that from that movie. And he's gone on to direct, you know, music videos and commercials and etc. So he's he's done stuff that's not that movie. But this is his feature film debut. And he figured uh, or his first real big budgeted feature film debut that he figured, OK, I want to go back to my roots and do the a sequel to the original film. It's again, I, I bring up the Dane Trejo to a certain degree because the first film was so his first one was inspired by El Mariachi, Robert Rodriguez's first movie. And the way I kept looking at our film was the desperado to his El Mariachi. So it's the same characters. It sort of takes place after the first movie, but we also recast (laughs) the lead uh, and some of the other major characters from the first film. So whereas the first film of El Mariachi was, you know, Rodriguez's friend, the second film, Desperado, is you know, major superstar, international superstar Antonio Banderas. Um, (laughs) um, So that's kind of how that evolved. And it's been, yeah, we've been working, you know, like I started working with him since in 2013 and, you know, independent film is hard. (laughs) Independent film is very hard to to get the funding and to, especially when you want to try to make a wild, big budgeted movie about a Filipino who throws egg rolls as his main choice of weaponry. And um, it took a while to get a lot of funding, a lot of folks agreeing to help us out. And um, we didn't start shooting the film until 2018. Wow. It was like five years. Yeah. And principal talk, you know, principal photography finished early 2019. And then we were about ready to do our, uh, our premiere, our, you know, our original premiere was, was, was supposed to be May, 2020. And then, you know, the pandemic hit. So um it took uh we took that time to do another year of post just to you know make it even better and our official premiere was november 2020 in uh, hawaii mm-hmm. uh, and we got our we eventually got all our screenings uh, film festival stuff last year in 2021 um but yeah it was a, it's a struggle it was a struggle to get the movie finished and to get it out there you know you know when it's going to be out? We are in the process of figuring that out. Okay. You know, I have a question that I yeah. wouldn't have asked if I, if I hadn't done this show. Sure. I got to talking, you know, among other people, <laughs> talking uh, uh, to a person who does uh, a comic book who only blacks as superheroes. And we got, mm. I got uh, to, to, to realize, you know, because I assumed. If only blacks were superheroes, they would control, you know, uh, the the white world, uh, mm. the United States. And he says, uh, "No, that's not where power is, mm. and it would just make things worse." And mm. then I, I talked to someone who uh, talks to creators of science fiction, fantasy in the Caribbean. Mm. There was uh, a book there about Caribbean um, superheroes, and mm. over there they. In them, they thought, no, we can be superheroes too, just like you know, 
even though we're from the Caribbean. Right. Uh, is there an, like, I know yours is a comedy where those two are not comedies. So, but is there an element of a different, like, is it possible to have, a, like, something about having a superhero come from uh, the Philippines mm-hmm. that is different from the way we're used to superheroes, uh, well, to the white superheroes in Marvel and DC? Um, it's a good question. And I feel like, um, it's very telling, right? That like you've talked to different communities and they've all want their version of what the Western superhero has. Right. And I feel like when you, when you have a character designed for, or to represent a community, the reason, you know, to, I think the reason to create a, such a character is to showcase the best of the, of them, of the community to be proud of it, to be someone to go, I am here as not just as a protector of the people, but to support and to show why being who I am is important and empowers me in a way that Captain America does uh, or Superman does. And I think that's part of the reason why Spider-Man is so popular is that Spider-Man as a character, he doesn't necessarily need to be white per se uh, that's why into the spider verse was a really fun movie for a lot of people because they were able to see you know if you're a comic book fan you've seen this for decades of spider-man what if he was here what if he was there but the great thing about the spider verse movie is that it allowed other folks to go oh the concept of spider-man isn't sub isn't just has to be about a kid from new york uh, per se, the concept can transfer to different cultures, but the story is still uh, resonates resonates to them, and that's the great thing about Spider Man in my eyes. But when you do create a character that's supposed to represent the best of the culture or like the the positive elements of the culture, it's empowering the culture itself. And then if other people like the character, there's the hope of other people who's not even who's not part of the culture. The hope is that they would see what makes that culture special in the form of that character. So yeah, our movie is, is comedic. It's, it's a comedy, you know, um, but you know, it, the character is a very proud Filipino character. He wears a, a borong, which is a, a, a ceremonial uh, Filipino wear uh, that we have for weddings and etc. And it's actually kind of like the sort of see-through-y kind of white, see-through-y kind of outfit. Um, and it means something, if you go deeper into the Filipino culture, the Barong has a deeper meaning, but it's just for the purpose of our movie, it's a representative of this is how Filipino this character is. He is, he wears this, he uh, has the, he throws our most popular food <laughs> yeah, uh, to the, to the, to the, to the, to the criminal, you know, the, almost in a way, if you want to say like, this is how proud I am. <laughs> That I'm Filipino. Uh, his name is even uh, his superhero name in the film is uh, is called Kuya, and Kuya is a is a term we use for Big Brother in in the in, for the Philippines. You know, like you know, I you know, I have a, my older brother. I keep talking about. Oh, hello, Big Brother in a good way, not Big Brother big, in a bad way. Yeah, Big Brother in a good way. Now, my brother, my my own personal brother, who I brought up a lot in this interview already. I just you know, I, I just call him Kuya. Mm-hmm. You know, I call him, hey, Kuya, when you, you know, et cetera. And then I have 
younger cousins who call me Kuya. You know, so it's not just, you know, direct brother, it's just older, respected member of the family. You say, you know, to a certain degree, if you want to distill it even further, is Kuya. So our hero views himself as Kuya to the community, the big brother to the community. I'm here to help when you need me here. And, you know, that to me is, you know, if I had that as a kid, you know, watching, you know, Power Rangers, watching, you know, uh, Superman and Batman. And then I had this other Filipino character who called himself Kuya and looked like my relatives and my family. I probably would have had a really big impact on, on, on me because I would have seen someone who reminded me of my life and he's proud of who he is. Whereas I wasn't sure, you know, for the longest time what it meant to be Filipino until I started hitting my teens, you know, and understanding like how, how kind of great it is to have a culture I can connect to. That's mine. You know, that took me till my forties uh, when I, uh, when I had a kid, mm. that's when I realized <laughs> the importance of uh, uh, tradition, having a tradition, having a, place to come from Personally, yeah I didn't care but yeah uh it's important what about it with like because you were instilling it to your children was that kind of when you started realizing it and I know I I never felt at home anyway I never felt I belonged anywhere I didn't belong <laughs> to the place where I was born yeah uh, which is Israel I didn't belong in the United States hmm. uh where I came to uh, and I liked, I connected the most with Spider-Man, not because he was white, but because he was a nerd like me. And like the original Stanley Spider-Man, you know, right. in high school, he was being bullied like me and he was a right. nerd and inside he knew he had great power. That's the thing I connected to. Hmm. Um, and I was the one who wanted to leave the place where I am and go... Uh, to whichever country, you know, just I felt I didn't have roots anywhere. But my brother and sister left before me, each to their own country. And I basically remained behind with my parents. Mm-hmm. But I had, I started suddenly having a family. And I saw how important it was for the kids to have grandparents. Mm-hmm. So even though, you know, I don't feel connected to the country, I feel an outsider in the country. I feel an outsider. Mm-hmm my political opinions in my view of uh, my atheism and everything. Uh, it is important for the kids to have uh, family. Right. And it is important to have, and this, this was basically what my wife was saying, mm. tradition. So don't believe in the stuff that's in the Bible that brings about the, uh, the holidays, but the holidays are nice. It's nice to have yeah. uh, traditions. Um, you know, that's, yeah. that's where I am. Sure. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, didn't want to think of them. Um, yeah, no, I totally, no, I understand. <laughs> it's important. And you know, some people get to that. You know, I'll, it's funny you bring it up the whole, like being, you know, like, uh, even feeling like a stranger in your own, Commute, your own community, your own culture. Even though, like, I'm, I'm proud to be a Filipino. I am a, I'm. There are days where I feel like, oh my, you know, especially when I was younger, if I wasn't Filipino enough, I have thought of that. You know, I'm not as dark skinned as some of the 
my Filipino friends. I'm a little mm-hmm. more fair skin and I get confused a lot to being mixed race than being full Filipino. When, especially when I was growing up, people thought I wasn't or oh, I was mixed with another uh, culture. Like, oh, you know, and being like, oh, you're not, you're not all Filipino. I had that a lot. You're not full of Filipino, right? Like you got some Chinese or Korean in you. I'm like, no. <laughs> so it was a, that was a struggle too growing up. And that's, that, that was part of the reason I had to even more embrace my culture as I was growing. Cause I felt like, no, that's not, no, that's who I am. I am, I am fully Filipino. I have a grandma who was half Chinese, but I didn't, I mean, that shows in how I look, but that's not, you know, that wasn't the culture I grew up in. You know, we were, a, it's a Filipino household, Filipino upbringing, um, et cetera. So um, I I had to learn it from that way, you know. Uh, so yeah, yeah. So. so what are your plans for the future? Um, well, um, besides the stuff with uh, this film, um, yeah, no, uh, it's, I guess to, you know, I'm, I'm the thing that I keep thinking about a lot is what will, you know, what's the first, you know, if I'm going to make a feature film, like my own feature film that I'll write and direct, what's that movie. Mm-hmm. And that, that has kind of been a back and forth in my brain for a couple of years. It, it, it's funny. Some days I'm from, sometimes I'll, I'll think of this one. I'll do this movie. I'll do this one instead, or I'll do this one. And like, I guess the, the thing I'm at that point is whatever, you know, it's trying to figure out what, how I want to make my first step forward, you know, saying this is me as a filmmaker. And it's been a struggle to figure that answer out. You know, I have a lot of, you know, I think everyone has ideas, but the question is, which one do I want to pull the trigger and say, kind of honestly, this is who I am first. Um, and I'm going to tell you, you know, it's a, a drama isn't going to be the first one I'm going to do. That, that's not where my heart is at. Um, it's uh, it would be disingenuous of me because that's not where my brain goes, you know, to do a full drama. So, yeah, it's going to be comedy of some fashion, but I just don't know how and what way, you know. Um, and, you know, besides that, you know, I've also been uh, getting ready to um, prep some comic book work again. Now I'm no longer drawing them. I'm just writing them. Um, and then I, I've kind of went around <laughs> my personal struggles of being an artist, but I still love the medium of comic books. So I've, uh, I have some, I, I, there's some stuff I've been working on that I hope to, you know, release online within some time. And I got a lot of, uh, other work with Lumpia that I am working on. I, I there's a comic book that we just got a Kickstarter, uh, success on oh. that's a spinoff of one of the characters. So that's coming out in April. So we're in the middle of that. And uh, in terms of the release of this film, um, we'll see. Like we, we did, while the main San Diego Comic-Con didn't happen in 2021, they did do a smaller version of the convention in November. And we premiered our film there to uh, a packed audience of over 200 people. Hmm. Uh, folks who not who didn't even hear of our film until the convention, and they're all you know, uh, and it did really well. It did really really well, and I am. Um, the reaction was great. Folks were were really supportive of it. Uh, 
And they weren't just Filipino audience members. It was, you know, but uh, plenty of non-Filipino audience members who went up to us, said they love the film. How can they support the film? So we're kind of hoping to go off that momentum and have someone buy the film there or help us release the film uh, in a way that we can give it to more people, you know? So that's the goal from that. And who knows, you know, we'll, we've talked about a, a further movie with this one. And uh, in terms of my own personal projects, yeah, I'm hoping to figure out uh, whatever my first film will be. And I think whatever it is, it's, it's, I have to remember it's, 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 it's for me, whatever that first movie is, it's me first. And hopefully that'll make it truthful than just trying to make something that's going to be air quote marketable for, uh, uh, for everyone else or, uh, easier to make or, or, or something that's going to be like in the trend. Cause then I feel like that'd be wrong for me to do it that way. So it's your experience of yourself. It's not like it's for me, me, me. It's like, it's who it's getting, expressing who you are, but can yeah. I ask you something? I don't often get to, to, to ask people. Maybe. Sure. Okay. Cause I don't get many people who write comedy here. And I, I think there's, there's real depth in comedy. Like yeah. depth, of, it, it's sometimes it's hard to see because people think comedy is light and comedy is, is just for fun. Right. And there are so many types of comedies. Like which right. type of comedy do you connect to? And do you feel that, that, that you connect to it on a deep level, like that it means something to you? Um, I will say um, one of my favorite filmmakers is uh, Albert Brooks and yes. and Steve Martin is another one. Um, and I, the thing I love about their work is this perception <laughs> uh, of, of, of our daily lives in their kind of interesting worldview that feels familiar um, and kind of extracting the humor from the familiarity, you know? Um, Mother, Albert Brooks's Mother is probably one of my favorite comedies because it's a movie that I looked at that and I'm, you know, my mom is not uh, a white, <laughs> it's not a white woman, but I, I look at, you know, Debbie Reynolds's mother in that film and I went, oh no, that's her. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's her. The humor in that is, is utterly the way she, you know, the, everything she does in that movie. Yeah, that's my mom. You know, uh, and uh, uh, with Steve Martin, uh, something like I'm a big fan of L.A. Story um, and his current show, like Only Murderers in the Building is I just finally got around to watching it. And it's so good. And I, I it's the way he extra extracts from the, uh, the normalcy and, and turn it to the absurd. But it's in the realm of, of I see where that comes from in, in the real world. I think those are the kind of comedies I gravitate towards. And uh, whatever I end up coming up with, if it's in that direction, great. Um, and uh, I think a lot of the humor I'm gravitating towards is also character-based. It's the character game, you know, it's the character humor stuff. So Back to the Future is great because Doc is in this level and Marty's over here and they connect, but also there's a lot of weird bouncing off of what of one person views or says something, etc. you know? Um, like, yeah, like if you go back to the first film, it's like, it's like, you know, Marty saying the line of like, along the lines of like, 
oh man, this is really heavy. And then Doc's like, heavy, heavy, heavy. You're always, it was the gravitational pull in the, in the future a little bit different than in 1985. And it's such a great joke, you know, <laughs> um, that it's like, because you know, Marty's just saying a thing that's just normal to him. But Doc is like, trying to process well why is he saying that <laughs> like that's fact kid you need to oh no i just is it because of this and because he's a scientist his brain mm-hmm. thinks of a scientific reason first as opposed to uh, a cultural slang reason his brain goes like right heavy oh the gravity 1985 must be worse i have to i have to get i have to make sure i, I know that now because i'm going to be in 1985 um and so i i think those are the kind of humor uh, that's the kind of humor i gravitate towards and um some of the humor that i i did kind of come up with for our our film does have that element in there and uh i try to go like oh if this character does this then we have to make sure he does this in act three you know so i hope to whatever i come up with i hope it kind of has those elements in there i I can tell you something about that as someone who my first, my first comedy was about mm. uh, four sketches about a mother and a kid. And each time okay. it was a different mother. And one of those sketches were about what you would call a Jewish mother. And I, uh, here we call it a Polish mother. So mm-hmm. it was 80% verbatim quotes of my grandmother. And my grandmother came to the show. And mm-hmm. she loved that. She loved that. She <laughs> told all her friends about that sketch and where does guy come up with those ideas? Because people don't recognize themselves. It was verbatim quotes of stuff she said. <laughs> and apparently one of, uh, one of my uncles, uh, yeah. the, his kids ran over to me and that's exactly his mother, which I didn't know her. That's exactly her. And then he came over to me very angry and said, there are no people like that. <laughs> so <laughs> People do not recognize themselves. Uh, you that's can do true. something that's so, you know, dead on and so, um, uh, so powerful in how uh, cri- critical it is of that person. Yeah. And they wouldn't recognize yeah. it. Like you'd be afraid that they'd be insulted and they wouldn't. Martin yeah. Short had the same thing, you know, his lawyer thing that says, you know, I know that. You don't think I know that? I know that. The, the chain smoking lawyer from Sunday Night Live. And apparently, uh, um, you know, it was his uh, makeup artist. And, and she, she would always say that. And then, uh, uh, but she didn't know. Right. Now it was her. And then yeah. sometime, you know, one time someone drunk at a party told her it was her. She was really hurt. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that's true. You're right. Yeah. No, that is such a no one. And I think that's a part of it is of being observant uh, of your own world is sort of like that's yeah, like we have it's funny what I want to sometimes extract in my own life into my projects. Uh, I have a coworker who is a literal sitcom character in real life. Like oh, yeah. he has catchphrases. He has, uh, he has ways of walking into the room. And every mm-hmm. time, like there's a part of me, I have a mental notebook in my brain going. <laughs> is he kind of like Kramer just sweeps into the room? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, uh, he's from, he's a lot older than most of us. He's, uh, he's from New York. Uh, uh, 
a very classic old, you know, uh, New York Jew, I guess you can say. He's very, very proud of calling himself that. He has, you know, and I, I love this guy, but he is he is a he is Kramer. He is definitely a Kramer character. He walks and bursts into a room going, hey, how's everyone doing? <laughs> you know, he has his catchphrases. He has his little quirks. And and I I, I joke around and with him going like one day I'm just going to put a laugh track underneath us whenever you walk into the room or the audience applause. And he's like, well, let me know when you do. I'll record it myself. I'm like, all right. But uh, yeah, I've been fearful of putting him in anything I write because there's a part of me goes like, like, oh, what if he catches on? But like you're pointing out, this is very true. He probably won't notice. <laughs> no. He probably won't know where that came. Oh, that's a great character. Would you come up with that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have one more story. It doesn't have, it has to do with Buster Kid in the beginning. By Please. The way, he has Please. he has an autobiography. If you haven't read it, mm. it's great. Uh, I found it like it, it's I think it's hard to find because you know mm. it's old and was never a bestseller. But he tells about his childhood and, uh, you know, this time in the movies and then, uh, you know, his, then his, the fall from success and what happened later and stuff like that. And when he was a kid, when he was like, uh, you know, he was, he was, he knew, the reason he knew how to fall was because when he was two years old, his father, they, his parents had a vaudeville show and his father would throw him at people in the audience. And he came on with a little, uh, beard and stuff and he appeared like a little uh, person. Anyway, so he knew how to fall without getting hurt from top, from uh, from height, without, you know, nothing ever happening to him. So they lived in a two-story uh, kind of uh, building uh, around a lake and around the lake was uh, this path and over the path here was a hill and over the hill was the uh, was a two two story uh, building. It's just they had a long corridor and a big window. And over at the bottom of the window, like this in the second in the second story, they had like a, a sand kind of thing. You know, one of the kids played. So when people walked around the lake, they would only see the second story. They wouldn't see the, the sand. So when he saw people coming over, and just as they were turning to see the building. He would throw his sister and throw his brother outside, out the window, and then take a quick run down the corridor and throw himself out the window, and people would panic. Wow. <laughs> that's the kind of thing. I, I thought maybe you didn't know that. So I thought, that's amazing. Where I did people, not know that. That's amazing. <laughs> where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on uh, Instagram at Justin Quiz, uh, twi- uh, Twitter uh, Justin at Justin Keys on. I'm uh, I'm also on TikTok. I've been posting a lot of uh, movie opinions and thoughts on TikTok. So you can find me on TikTok at Justin Quiz. And uh, I have several podcasts. I'm a co-host for a monthly show called Nothing New, a remake podcast, uh, where we take the, the you know we 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 talk about the uh, the original film and the current uh, or ver- or a remake version of it and discuss differences between the two and maybe the ups and downs of doing a remake. Uh, I also do a, a bi-weekly Twitch stream called Disney Plus Diversity, where we take um, various different Disney films and properties and discuss, you know, where they're at in terms of just cultural representation, even, you know, for good or bad. And uh, also uh, we, we're on a break, but I think we're going to hit up we're going to start up soon in sometime in February. Uh, our, uh, another Twitch show that I do called Nerdtastic, uh, 
with some with, with the, actually with the co with the director. Uh, it's a show I do with the director of Lumpia and our co-star Earl, where we talk about different franchises and break down the history of of them. So we had did an episode on you know Ninja Turtles. We did an episode on on uh, Power Rangers. We did an episode on uh, Karate Kid. So that's a that's also coming up in sometime in February. And uh, yeah, uh, that's where you can find me. Thank you so much to Justin Kizan. I enjoyed that very much, and I don't often get to talk to other comedy enthusiasts. We have Justin's links in the show notes, including his link tree, so check that out. Now, next time, because there's always a next time, and the quilt is almost infinite. It is too big for me to get through the entire thing. Uh, next time, we will go down the rabbit hole of yet another unique and special Special, special, special personal journey. So stick around for that. What did you think about this episode? Email me at guy.hasson at geekdomimpals.com. Hasson is spelled H-A-S-O-N. Email me. Not just what you think about this episode. If you have ideas for guests, let me know, okay? Geekdom in Pals comes out on Tuesdays and Thursdays. The website is geekdominpals.com. On Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, we're at Geekdom in Pals. If you want to check out my other podcast, The Squash Buckler Diaries, it's an experiment in epic fantasy. I'm doing something that's never been done before. And whatever you imagine there, it's not that. So feel free to check that out, The Squash Buckler Diaries. I will see you next time. And for now, have an empowered day.